Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, podcast listener. Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in bigger than ever for Season 9. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today. I'd like to start this episode by welcoming everybody back. I know it's been a while, but this is the start of the next season of Demystified. The next five episodes will revolve around one linking topic that connects all of these mysteries. And the topic for this season is... Humans. We'll be taking a look at five intriguing mysteries revolving around the human body, the human experience, and why it is that some people are a little different than the norm. What makes these people stand out from the crowd, and can it be explained? So, without further ado, I present the first episode, entitled, Up in Flames. The 15th of March, 1731, Cesena in what is today Italy, but back then was the Papal States, the physical manifestation of the power of the Holy See, until the unification of Italy in 1870 with the conquest of Rome confining them to the Vatican City, the Catholic Church controlled actual territory and ran it, as one would any other country. But this story is not about them, it's about one particular person in the city of Cesena, a countess of wealth and status. This particular countess, Cornelia Zangheri Bandi, was getting on in years, she was in her 60s and was particularly fond of brandy. Some even say that she used it as an ointment for her ailing body. Others that she merely drank the stuff like a fish drinks water. That evening, at dinner, the Countess wasn't herself. She was described as dull and heavy. Whatever that means, whether she was tired or worn out, I don't know. What we do know is that she was accompanied to her bedchambers by one of her maids who helped her prepare for a relaxing evening. The two spent several hours together, talking and praying, and when the maid left, the countess was already asleep. When the maid returned the next morning to awake the countess and prepare her for the rigors of the day of a socialite, she was perplexed. Her mistress was not in her bed. But something was odd. The room smelled horrible, a waxy, oily smell permeating the air. She'd knocked on the door as a courtesy at the usual hour of waking, but her mistress had not responded. Thinking she must have needed a lie-in, the maid returned a little while later, with no reply again. Something must have been wrong, she thought, so the maid opened the door and went to the window to see where her mistress could be. And that's when she saw it. A pile of ash around four feet from the bed in which two of the bottom halves of her mistress's legs, her mistress's skull, and several of her finger bones sat. Covered in the ash was an oil lamp, devoid of fuel. The furniture was untouched by the ash, but was instead covered in an oily, waxy substance that must have been the source of the aforementioned smell. 
I don't know what the maid did next, probably screamed or fainted or ran, all of those valid options. But here's the account from Paul Rowley, a translator for the Royal Society, who in 1745 transcribed an account from the Veronese historian Giuseppe Biancini. Quote, The Countess Cornelia Brandi, in the 62nd of her year of age, was all day as well as she used to be, but at night was observed, when at supper, dull and heavy. She retired, was put to bed, where she passed three hours and more in familiar discourses with her maid, and in some prayers, at last falling asleep, the door was shut. In the morning, the maid, taking notice that her mistress did not awake at the usual hour, went into the bedchamber and called her. But not being answered, doubting of some ill accident, opened the window and saw the corpse of her mistress in this deplorable condition. Four feet distance from the bed, there was a heap of ashes, two legs untouched from the foot to the knee, with their stockings on. Between them was a lady's head, whose brains, half the back part of the skull and the whole chin were burnt to ashes, amongst which were found three fingers blackened. All the rest was ashes, which this particular quality they had left in the hand when taken up a greasy, stinking moisture. The air in the room was also observed, cumbered with soot floating in it. A small oil lamp on the floor was covered with ashes, but no oil in it. Two candles in candlesticks upon a table stood upright. The cotton was left in both, but the tallow was gone and vanished. Somewhat of moisture was about the foot of the candlesticks. The bed received no damage. The blankets and sheets were only raised on one side, as when a person rises up from it or goes in. The whole furniture, as well as the bed, was spread over with moist and ash-coloured soot, which had penetrated into the chest of drawers, even to foul the linens. Nay, the soot was also gone into a neighbouring kitchen, and hung on the walls, movables, and utensils of it. From the pantry a piece of bread was covered with that soot, and brown-black was given to several dogs, all of which refused to eat it. In the room above it was moreover taken notice that from the lower part of the windows trickled down a greasy, loathsome, yellowish liquor, and thereabout smelled a stink, without knowing of what, and saw the soot fly around. It was remarkable that the floor of the chamber was so thickly smeared with a gluish moisture that it could not be taken off, and the stink spread more and more through the other chambers. Quote. If that's not horrifying, I don't know what is. A person consumed whole by flames, but seemingly no discernible cause. That account is the first recorded instance we have of a phenomenon that continues to puzzle the scientific community to this day. Firstly with the question of whether or not it even exists, and then with the question of, if it does, how? Today on Demystified we look into the fact and the fiction behind spontaneous human combustion. Well, this marks the beginning of Demystified Season 2, and it's great to be back. The next five episodes comprising this season, which will be released over the next few weeks, will be focused around human-centric mysteries. Less on the history side, more on the mystery side, but we'll probably go back the other way in Season 3. So to kick things off, we're looking at one of the strangest things that a person can supposedly do. Randomly set on fire for no reason. 
Now, instances of people setting themselves on fire occur all the time throughout history, the most famous examples being Buddhist monks in places like Vietnam or Tibet in acts of protest. But the idea of spontaneous human combustion is that a person can, for whatever reason, just catch fire. And I'm not talking about smoking next to a gas station either. The implication here is that the immolation comes from an internal source. That being said, those of you paying attention in the opening will have noticed that there may be more in terms of outside influence to these cases than would appear. It should be said that this is a mystery in the sense that the existence of spontaneous human combustion has not been proven. There is no scientific consensus on it, which means that one must, as the scientific community has, assume that it does not exist. It's a bit like ghosts or leprechauns, the burden of proof falls on the one claiming it exists. But unlike the other two, which tend to fall more or less firmly in the category of supernatural, this is something unexplained that tends to fall more towards pseudoscience in terms of how it gets explained. I will be entertaining the idea to examine it, but let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. So let's do an overview. Spontaneous human combustion, or spontaneous combustion as we'll be calling it, refers to a person catching fire without a clear or obvious force. The fire starts, in some form or another, with and within the victim. The first recorded example was the one we used in the intro, the case of Countess Sangheri Bandi in 1731. Larry E. Arnold, in his 1995 book Ablaze, cites that there have apparently been around 200 reported cases of this phenomenon since that first report around 300 years ago. That's worldwide, by the way, so it's not a big pool to go off of. Granted, if the pool was much bigger, this would be a better explored topic, wouldn't you say? Let's put a pin in Mr. Arnold and his book, because we'll be coming back to criticise it later. But to begin with, we'll take a few case studies, with which we can compare evidence, as it's suggested later. The first case would be the one we discussed in detail in the intro. I've basically said my piece on it, Countess Sanghi Brandi from Italy in 1731. The second case comes from St. Petersburg, Florida, in 1951. On the 2nd of July, 67-year-old Mary Risa was found burnt to death in her home. The landlady called the cops after noticing the doorknob was unusually hot, and going inside, she discovered the body burnt to ash. One leg was left, and the armchair she'd been sitting in was burnt up too. Detectives and forensics found her body had burnt at a temperature of nearly 2,000 degrees Celsius, which was odd as most of the room was intact. Since she took sleeping pills regularly and was a smoker, the combination of those two items was the suggested cause of her demise. The third case comes from Dublin, the good old Emerald Isle. On March 28, 1970, an 89-year-old widow named Margaret Hogan was found burnt almost fully. Plastic flowers on a nearby table had been liquefied and the television in the room was also melted. Otherwise, the room was undamaged. Her two legs below the knee were all that remained. A small coal fire had been burning in the hearth, but the investigation found no link between that and her death. The cause of death was listed as death by burning, but the cause of the fire being unknown. Then, in 1980, in the village of Rassau in the valleys of Wales, Henry Thomas was found burned to death in his council house. The 73-year-old was incinerated, leaving only part of his skull and his legs below the knee, which was still in their socks. Now, the police forensic investigators did stumble upon something that we'll touch upon later, so I'll leave that for now. Finally, in 2010, yes, that recently, in Ireland again, 76-year-old Michael Faherty of County Galway was found dead by burning. On the 22nd of December, his neighbour was awoken in the small hours of the morning by his smoke alarm. Faraday's house was billowing smoke, and the fire brigade and the Gardai, the Irish police, were called. 
Faraty was found totally burned, his body lying head towards an open fireplace. However, extensive investigation concluded that the fireplace was not involved in his death, but he had died from burns. He was diabetic and had hypertensions, but heart failure was ruled out as a cause of death, as was foul play. The coroner's official statement was thus, quote, This fire was thoroughly investigated, and I'm left with the conclusion that this fits into the category of spontaneous human combustion, for which there is no adequate explanation. End quote. This was strongly contested by skeptic Benjamin Radford, who we'll get back to later, who argued that the case was not nearly firmly investigated enough. So those are some case studies, five to be exact, including the cold open. There has been some scientific study of this phenomenon done, as you would expect, and some findings have been reached, such as they are. In 1938, the British Medical Journal, one of the world's oldest and most established medical journals, cited Coroner Gavin Thurston in its study into the phenomenon. What was drawn up was a list of unifying factors that seemed to precipitate the phenomenon. The first factor was the victims tended to be chronic alcoholics. This may or may not be surprising and was a potential factor in our first story. The Countess had a tipple of brandy before bed and even used it as an ointment to cover herself. You couldn't make yourself more flammable if you tried. The next factor was that victims tended to be elderly women. This was the case in our intro story, but I can't myself see how this would lean one to being more flammable. On the other hand, of our cases, most but not all of them were elderly women. All were elderly, but three of the five were women. That's just for our small sample size, however. The third factor was that the fire had started from an external source. Now, it's quite damaging to the idea of spontaneous combustion, isn't it? The fourth factor was that in most cases, the hands and feet fell off. Weird, but maybe that describes the pattern of the burns, that the fire starts from within the person. This seemed to be borne out in our case studies. The only things left were hands, feet below the knee, or parts of the skull from time to time. The fifth is that the fire causes little to no damage to things in contact with the body. Now, this is a little bit strange. If a toaster catches fire, the blaze can spread to an apartment, and then all of a sudden the whole tower block is on fire. But in cases of spontaneous combustion, it seems that very little outside the person themselves is burnt. This could mean that the fire burns so hot so quickly it confumes all the fuel, in this case the person, before it can be spread. Maybe this explains the circumstances in the first case, where the Countess's bedsheets and room were covered in this strange, viscous substance, but not much outside of that was burnt. Speaking of which, the sixth factor, the fires always leave behind, quote, a residue of greasy and fetid ashes, very offensive in odour, Now, I'm sure a charred body isn't pleasant at the best of times, but it's interesting that as opposed to just bones or ash, that grease and slime is always mentioned, as well as that repulsive odour. One might assume it's fat left over from the body, but might that not also burn? Side note, if you're of a weak stomach, this might not be the best episode to listen to. Go check out our one on the Nazca lines, much more pleasant. Nowculated is season one for your listening pleasure. Anyways, looking at these factors, we can begin to speculate on the manner that the burning takes place. There aren't many examples of eyewitnesses seeing the event, more people finding the aftermath and drawing a conclusion. So, elderly alcoholic women tend to be the biggest at-risk group. Alcoholic I get. In the words of George Watsky, when the fiery end comes, we'll burn up quicker, cause we're full of liquor. 
But I don't know about the medical records of elderly women enough to know what that might change. It could just not be a medical thing. Let's say that, using a massive and very Western-centric stereotype, elderly women love baking. So that's more time spent near an open flame, which leads to the third factor of outside heat sources. Maybe. As a side note, it's worth noticing that any of these factors could just be coincidence. It could be the fact that most cases reported in elderly women has nothing to do with the actual risk factors associated with spontaneous combustion. Then the body burns, usually from some heat source that ignites it, and the hands and the feet fall off, leaving behind a foul-smelling pile of ash and some kind of slimy residue, but doing almost no damage to anything nearby. The only explanation that to me makes sense at this point is that the fires burn so quickly they don't burn the whole body. The hands and feet are left, and so is the weird goo, as well as most of the things in contact with the deceased. But our study doesn't stop there, no no. In 1984, Joe Nickel, famous skeptic and his long-term collaborator and forensic analyst John F. Fisher, conducted a two-year study that included extensive research into spontaneous human combustion. Now, I'm usually very suspicious of people who research the paranormal as a job, and I would be suspicious of Nickel, but he earns points from me for being a very dedicated skeptic. A dedication that's won him awards from the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry, and even a threat of violence from Ed Warren of Amityville Horror fame when he said he didn't believe him. The CSI itself has had notable alumni, including Carl Sagan, James Randi, Stephen Jay Gould, and Isaac Asimov, so it's no wishy-washy organization. Anyway, Nickel and Fisher did a two-year study into the phenomenon and came up with some interesting results. Taking stories from the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries, the findings helped to kind of explain why cases may have presented in the way that they did. Firstly, the bodies in almost all cases were close to some sort of external ignition. An open flame, a source of great heat, something like that. Surprise, surprise, we've been over that before, but what we haven't been over is that in many of the cases reported, deeper investigation found the details of the open flames, which were covered up in some tellings of the stories in order to intentionally deepen the mystery. Long-time listeners will remember how when we discussed the Bermuda Triangle in episode 2, part of the reason that these stories were so well-known and mysterious is that the actual truth isn't nearly as widely reported. Boat goes missing and gets a load of attention, but when it turns up a few weeks later and everyone and everything is just fine, that gets almost no attention. So people know about the former mystery, but they don't know about the latter explanation. The same here. The stories first go around that a person spontaneously combusted, but then when it's revealed that the source of the flame was nearby, that doesn't make the same rounds. The next big finding was the same as the 1938 journal, the presence or consumption of alcohol again. Not surprising, but with the added assertion that intoxication could render the victim both less careful, thus more likely to set themselves on fire, and less able to put themselves out once on fire. In cases where the body was mostly intact, there was often a plausible source of fuel that was instead burnt, a blanket, a comforter, the victim's clothing, etc, etc. Now here's where it gets detailed, and it gets messy, so again, if you're of weak stomach, maybe choose something else to listen to. We get an explanation of why there was that oily, greasy, smelly mess. It's got to do with something called the wick effect. In cases where the body was more totally destroyed, there was usually something that helped fuel the fire more. A stuffed armchair, wooden flooring, a dry carpet. But not only did these things fuel the fire leading to more burning, they actually kept the rancid oils. It works like this. 
When a human body that's totally naked burns, it tends to just render down. The fat itself also catches fire if the flame is burning long enough, and at a certain point even the bones can burn, leaving behind mere fragments. But when a body burns with clothes on or in proximity to something that might have, and it's so weird to describe this, a soaking effect, the fats and the oils can actually be retained after the fire goes out. It's called the wick effect because it basically works like a candle wick. It draws the melted oils into itself, then when the fire is burnt out, the residue is left behind. Remember the case of Henry Thomas from 80s Wales? The police forensic examiners suggested the wick effect as the cause of this strange death before this study was even published. As for why nearby objects weren't damaged, well, that's a facet of the fact that fire tends to burn upwards rather than outwards. The fire burns in a personal column, and if there's nothing flammable above and the body isn't in direct contact with anything else flammable, then no big fire. The fire itself is small, again, almost personal, and the wick effect allows for a massive amount of damage to be done to the person without nearby objects being similarly afflicted. In the same way you can walk next to a mid-sized bonfire without catching fire, nearby objects might just be fine. The biggest takeaway was Nichols' assertion that the attempts to explain all unexplained burnings with one unifying theory is a bad idea. There's no such thing as spontaneous human combustion because each combustion has its own factors that make them all different. Sure, you can draw some commonalities, but there isn't one specific reason for why people just catch fire. Now let's completely ignore that sound and sage advice and look for one specific reason why people just catch fire. Biologist Brian J. Ford suggested that ketosis, a physical condition caused sometimes by alcoholism that results in a higher level of ketone bodies in the human body, which caused the body to produce acetone, also known as propanone, a highly flammable liquid with a pungent odour. This overabundance of a highly flammable source of fuel within the body could explain the spontaneous nature of combustion. Cellular researcher Lawrence Afrin, MD, posited that a very rare condition called mast cell activation syndrome, or MCAS, might be the culprit. Mast cells are a type of white blood cell, part of your immune system. The next bit is paraphrased from my reading because it's very technical. So, MCAS causes the mast cells to release over 200 inflammatory molecules known as mediators, including the substance noradrenaline, also called norepinephrine. Afrin described the case of a report of a man with MCAS who appeared to be smoking, physically, in the presence of several witnesses. He postulated that the release of large amounts of noradrenaline, or perhaps another mast cell-derived substance, could turn on a regulatory protein called UCP1 in abnormal qualities. Now, UCP1 causes adipose, or fat, oxidization to be released as heat. Adipose tissue is a known repository of mast cells, therefore... A sudden flood of noradrenaline released from as-opposed mast cells could activate the UCP1 switch and cause heat generation of over 90 degrees Celsius. Once the adipose tissue was ignited, it would therefore burn itself out right down to the bone marrow. So, bit technical, maybe convincing? It requires a huge amount of very specific things to happen at once to work, though. First, you need to have MCAS, which is pretty rare, uh, about 0.06% of the US population from my research. Then you need them to release the noradrenaline, which doesn't always happen. And then you need that to activate the UCP1, which doesn't always happen. Then you need an internal ignition, and that part is somewhat theoretical. This is all just a speculation. Whilst the theory is built on strong scientific foundations, there's no actual 
evidence that this is the cause of spontaneous human combustion. Dr. John Emsley, a British chemist from King's College London, suggested that it could be the result of an overproduction of a pyrophoric, that is, spontaneously combustible, liquid called diphosphate. He speculated that the self-combustion of diphosphate would also result in the ignition of the hydrogen and methane gases in the gut, which would explain why some cases witnessed a blue flame originating from the abdomen. Methane burns with a pale blue flame. But if that's the case, then surely it'd be more common, or you'd have far more instances of the gases inside people catching fire. We did talk in our very first episode about natural spark points of things like ethanol gas, so it is possible, but I don't know if the average human stomach contains enough oxygen to allow that kind of combustion. Now we get to the proper pseudoscience. Let's take that pin back out of Larry Arnold. Remember him? He suggested that it was a new kind of undiscovered subatomic particle that he called pyrotron that was the cause of spontaneous human combustion. Right off the bat, we've got a big old problem there. He argued that increased alcohol in the blood could cause a human to become more flammable. Okay, we've talked about that before. And that extreme stress caused some sort of reaction between the person and the pyrotron particles that caused spontaneous combustion. He didn't suggest what that reaction was. Our friend Joe Nickel criticised this as an argument from ignorance, that logical fallacy that something must be true because it has not been proven false, or the reverse as the case may be. One other suggestion has been ball lightning, an unexplained phenomenon in and of itself wherein lightning appears as a ball rather than as a bolt. If it struck a person under admittedly astronomically unlikely circumstance, it could maybe combust you? Lightning is very, very hot. If I'm reading my sources right, it can be as hot in the core of a bolt as 50,000 degrees Celsius. And if that heat was applied for a longer duration than usual lightning strikes, you'd melt a person. Or vaporise them, maybe. A final suggestion is that it's poltergeists. In the 1976 book Fire from Heaven, British writer Michael Harrison, a nom de plume, wrote, quote, The force which activates the poltergeist originates in and is supplied by a human being. SHC, fatal or non-fatal, belongs to the extensive range of poltergeist phenomenon. End quote. This, of course, entirely hinges on poltergeists being real, and, since there's absolutely no enough evidence to suggest that they are, I can stamp this one very quickly with a busted stamp that I stole from the sadly closed-down Mythbusters lab. Remember that fallacy of the argument from ignorance? The burden of proof is on the guy who's saying poltergeists are real to prove that they are, and not on me to prove that they're not. As the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry loved to say, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. So, is spontaneous human combustion a real thing? No, of course it's not, or at least I can assume not. Deputy Editor of Skeptical Inquirer Benjamin Radford said it best when he said, quote, If SHC is a real phenomenon and not the result of an elderly or infirm person being too close to a flame source, why doesn't it happen more often? There are 5 billion people in the world today, it was written in 1987, and yet we don't see reports of people bursting into flames while walking down the street or attending a football game or sipping a coffee at the local Starbucks, end quote. Basically, it's like a whole host of things I've talked about from UFOs to Bigfoot sightings. As our technology, and more importantly, our ability to record things as they're happening, gets better, the instances of things like spontaneous human combustion get rarer and rarer. Think about it, really. 
In the age of TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Twitch streams, basically 24-7, 365 coverage of everything that happens from most angles, wouldn't we see at least one instance of one of these people bursting into flames for no reason at all? If that's the case, then why has the cause of spontaneous human combustion eluded us for so long? Well, it's probably, as was stated earlier by Nickel, there are so many disparate cases, all of which have totally different explanations, that you can't lump them all together under one neat, tidy explanation. The Italian Countess? Well, she lived in an age where open flames were the only source of light or heat. Well, I guess lamps as well. Anne had literally slept in and worn layers upon layers of flammable clothes and, if you believe some sources, dabbed herself with brandy before bed. Mary Risa from Florida? That's probably what the coroner said. Sleeping pills and cigarettes combined with the armchair acting as our wick. Margaret Hogan and Michael Faherty, coincidentally both from Ireland, were found pretty close to sources of open flame. In the case of the former, her extreme old age would have certainly impaired her ability to extinguish herself and in the latter, his remains were found head towards the fire lying on the floor. It is an extrapolation from incomplete data, but is it so hard to consider that they fell close to their fire sources by some means and then caught fire and were either asleep or unconscious or infirm? And Henry Thomas from Wales, in a case recorded before the study published by Nickel and Fisher, the wick effect was cited as the cause of death or as a serious contributing factor. So, there you have it. My conclusion would be that all of these people were set on fire by some cause, and the specifics of how the wick effect causes you to burn in a localized pillar of a very hot temperature with your clothes or nearby objects absorbing a lot of the remains make it look as though the person has spontaneously combusted. Easy, right? Well, no, because there are cases that exist outside the margins of even that and still defy an easy explanation. The diversity of experience is why we're unlikely to get an easy explanation anytime soon. But again, if I'm getting out my purloined Mythbusters stamps and choosing one for this, I'm picking busted as opposed to plausible, because all the plausible theories involve something that is not an internal, spontaneous flame. So spontaneous human combustion is, at best, a misnomer. It's easy to see why people are so taken with the idea, though. It's got a unique, gross, horrifying, mystifying quality that can't be matched, pun intended. Imagine a person violently and suddenly, and apparently for no reason at all, bursting into this personal column of flame and within moments reduced to a pile of ash and human gloom, with their legs sticking out of the pile in what was, other than for themselves, a morbidly comical fashion. It's a uniquely visceral, terrifying image that lingers in the popular consciousness. Charles Dickens knew that all too well when in Chapter 10 of Bleak House, spoiler alert, the character of Mr. Crook dies by spontaneous combustion. His friends in the scientific community told him he was perpetuating an unsubstantiated myth, but he kept it in, given in part that it works well as a literary device if you want someone to have a cruel and unusual demise. It's so weird and kooky and bizarre, with just enough real-life instances of maybe this happening that people know about it and can resonate with it. This is Spinal Tap, the famous mockumentary, shows it as the means of disposal for two of the band's drummers, because it's so random and funny and weird. There's also the possibility that it's a convenient way to explain the unexplainable, like the criticism of the Irish coroner back in 2010. If you don't know how the person died, you could just slap the label of spontaneous human combustion on it and be done. Case closed. Even that quote 
for which there is no adequate explanation. Almost feels like a washing of the hands, doesn't it? I'm not going to cast too much shade on that coroner, but I feel like you shouldn't be allowed to use pseudoscience in an official ruling in this day and age. If you don't know, say you don't know, but don't go dragging the not-at-all-proven phenomenon of human combustion into it. Spontaneous human combustion, that is. In that sense, it could be like fan death. In Korea, there is a somewhat common belief that if you have a fan on in a closed room, like just like a regular air fan, it can somehow suck all the oxygen out of the room and kill you. Now, of course, this is to use a scientific term, bollocks. I've slept in many a closed room with a fan on, I'm sure many of you listeners out there have too. But it's a convenient cover-up for cases of suicide, so they say, which is a highly taboo subject in Korea due to social norms. Thus, when a relative commits suicide, which could cast the family in a bad light, you say they died of fan death, thus both silently acknowledging the reality whilst maintaining a socially acceptable front, and enough people believe fan death to be real for that to stick. It's not exactly the same, but perhaps in the minds of some people the nebulous and weird and scary idea of spontaneous human combustion provides a catch-all label to lump things under, in a god of the gaps kind of way, like marking here there be monsters on the blank parts of a map. If you don't know what goes there, just say X or Y or Z and be done with it. So there's your lesson to take away from this episode, first of our season on human mysteries. Don't be too quick to make assumptions, because you know what they say that they make out of you and me. And with that we close the book, for now at least, on spontaneous human combustion. This episode of Demystified was written, recorded, and edited by me, Ashley Styles, with hosting by Wizard Studios and music from ProductionCrate.com. Go to ProductionCrate.com for all of your royalty-free music needs. Follow us on Twitter at demystified underscore pod and support us on Patreon at demystified by Ashley Styles. We've got new episodes for bonuses coming out soon. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.